1996, fresh out of Trevecca Nazarene College at that time, a church in Nashville called me to come and be their youth pastor. And I think kind of building on what Matt was saying earlier, they only hired me and called me because I was pledged at that time to bring Jamie with me. We weren't married, we were engaged, and they hired me conditional upon me going through with that wedding. And uh, they made a good choice, right? As a fresh out of college youth pastor learning to be not just pastor to the youth, but pastor to the youth and families, and pastor to people who did not have students or youth in the church, but were just families that kind of wandered in and out. One of the things that I did and participated in with our multi-staff team was to make hospital calls. And so I was asked one week, maybe a Tuesday or Wednesday, to go and make a hospital call on a family who had just had a, new, a baby. And this couple did attend the church occasionally, but uh, the, mother's, the new mother's sister was very much involved, uh, I think a board member at the church, and very good friends with, with me and with Jamie. So I was asked to go and visit Cindy and uh, her new baby and husband. So I, I went, and I was still learning to make, you know, the conversation that a pastor makes with you in a, on a hospital call. I walked in the hospital room, talked for a while, was asked if I wanted to hold the baby. And at 21, I wasn't into holding babies, so I just kind of looked and made those faces that you make when you're seeing a new baby. And I said, what, what did you name this baby? And she says, we named this baby Jonah. Well, they already had one child named Daniel. And so me, being a college graduate and being a youth pastor and being on a pastoral call, did a little quick math, and I went, Daniel, Bible name, Jonah, Bible name. Ah, here's some conversation I can have with them. How important it is to name a child and give a child a name with meaning and substance. I'll bring up the fact that it's cute that they are using Bible names for their children. And there's good news because there's a whole lot of Bible names so they can have all the kids that they want to have. <laughs> so I, I turned to Cindy and, and her husband and I said, Jonah, that's an awesome name. You don't see too many people named Jonah anymore. And you've got Daniel already. I think it's awesome that you guys are using Bible names. When Jamie and I get to having children, I think we'll consider some of the Bible names too. And she just kind of looked at me, just nothing, just straight look. And I thought, uh-oh, did I say something that I shouldn't have said? Did, did I not say good job on naming your child Jonah and you already have Daniel? And So I looked at her and I said, you know, like, Daniel in the lion's den and Jonah in the belly of the whale, Bible names. I, I think it's awesome that, you know, you guys come to church and you, you're naming your children, giving these strong Bible names, and they'll grow up certainly with the fear and the knowledge of the Lord. Blank. And finally she says, well, we didn't know that Jonah was a Bible name. And I went, oh. Well, it is. And she said, and we didn't know Daniel was a Bible name either. They were just names that we liked and thought that it fit our last name pretty well. And we hope that it fits this baby pretty well, too. And I went, it's okay. It's not a requirement that you know it was a Bible name to name your baby after a Bible character or a Bible person. It'll be all right. Daniel and Jonah will grow up just fine. And I left that visit and got in my car and drove back and was just thinking to myself, how could you name a child Jonah and not know about the belly of the whale? 
How can you name a child Daniel and not know about the lion's den and the other things in Daniel? How could you not know those two were Bible names? It, it just blew my mind. And I realized that we often will hear names in society, read them in a book, hear things talked about in conversations that we're not involved in, and we won't know anything about it. But that name or that word will kind of stick in our head. Now, if you have never heard of Jonah, you don't know anything about the story, and all you've seen is the holy moly this morning, um, well, you've got some stuff coming your way. My guess is, though, that most of us in this room have heard of Jonah. We know the story. We've been to Vacation Bible School. We went to Sunday school when we were growing up. We have some idea about Jonah and his tale of being in the well and all the things surrounding that. We, we know about that story. We know all the details about it. In fact, I would suspect that somebody in this room, don't raise your hand, is probably a Jonah expert. Afterwards, you're going to email me or you're going to come up to me and you're going to say, I know exactly what kind of fish it was. I can tell you exactly how it happened and the way that it fit there and all the details about it. You'll tell me about the ship that he was on and probably the way the waters were shaking that day and why they have storms that time of year in that area of the world. You'll tell me about Nineveh and the size of Nineveh and how it was possible that he could get from one side to the other as quickly as he did and get the words out without a, a microphone or without any type of gathering, how it was all possible and logical that these things happened. You'll be a Jonah expert and I'll appreciate that information, and I'll act like I haven't heard it before. So thank you very much. But probably most of us, even if we know the story, and we know the details of the story, we're just not sure what always to do with the story. And if we do remember and know something about Jonah, we probably remember more about the fish, more about his rebelling and running from God, and and more about the details surrounding those things than we do actually about what God, I believe, is really trying to show to us. Because I will tell you, it is my belief, it's my conviction, and my attempt to convince you this morning that this is really not about a fish, and it's not about a city that was full of sin and rebellion, and it's really even not about a dude named Jonah. It's a story about God. In fact, I feel pretty safe in saying that because that's what the whole Bible is about, by the way. We just get people and names and places and events mixed up sometimes and sometimes get out of order that this is a story about the way God has worked throughout eternity to rescue and redeem and restore and set right all of the things that are wrong in this world. And we focus in on the things that, that we might say are non-essentials or are really not as important as the primary thing. This is a story about God. And right at the heart of this, this chapter in Jonah, and Jonah is in the Old Testament. He's a minor prophet, one of the 12 minor prophets. Right in the center of this story, in Jonah chapter 3, verse 10, comes, I think, what is the center of this whole book of the Bible. It's not often that a preacher can preach a whole book of the Bible in a sermon, but Jonah is short enough that I think we can kind of cover those details this morning. In Jonah chapter 3, verse 10, it says this, God saw what they were doing, meaning Nineveh, and how they had once been a place full of sin, a city full of sin. And when Jonah began to preach to them following his escape from the fish, so the nicest way I can say that, he preaches to them and tells them that God's going to destroy their city. The king and all of his servants begin to say, we have to pray, we have to fast, we have to change the way that we are. And it says to us in Jonah chapter 3, God saw what they were doing, confessing, praying, crying out, 
and that they had ceased their evil behavior. So God stopped planning to destroy them, and he didn't do it. God sees that when they hear that Jonah is preaching to them in a way that suggests that their whole life and world is about to change forever and ever, they who have no history with God, they who have no Sunday school or VBS or church camp training respond to this good news or this news that Jonah shares to them, maybe for the very first time they've ever heard in their life, the very first time they've ever encountered this news about a God who's going to reach out and touch them in a very personal way. And the king, instead of saying, bring out the armies, close the gates, let's do everything we can to defend the city, he says, no, let's change things. Let's pray. Let's confess our sins. Let's just hope and pray that in some way, maybe this God might change his mind. Or he may get uh, confused and go to a different city. Maybe we can be saved if we just confess our sins and stop doing what we're doing. The good news of this whole story, the whole story of Jonah from chapter 1 to chapter 4, is that our God is a God who is more merciful than vengeful more loving than killing. A God who wants to be compassionate, loving, forgiving, merciful. He's long-suffering. He's patient. He's kind. He desires not just to know about us in the way that he's created us in detail, but he wants and longs to know us and walk with us and change us and forgive us And make the things in life that bring us so much pain and shame and hopelessness. He wants to change those and bring meaning and definition and purpose and clarity to the way that we see the world and we see our lives and we see this God who has created us and has redeemed us and is now sustaining our faith. Right in this passage, I think, is the point of this Jonah story. It's the gospel, right? It's the good news that Jonah, who once was rebellious, who had no reason to be, but was once rebellious, finds forgiveness in the second chance in the hands of God. And that Nineveh, who never knew the right way, but was caught up and condemned in their sin, here's the good news. Here's this judgment of God coming, and they respond, even though I don't think Jonah in any way gives them an idea that they should respond and change. He just says, God's about to kill you good news here here is that something inside of them said, maybe, just maybe, this God is different than some of the other gods we've prayed to before or we've dealt with before. Maybe, just maybe, this God is going to do something different than what Jonah has said if we change our ways. That's good news. That's gospel. Before you begin to think that, well, that's an Old Testament story or that's a Jonah story or that's a Nineveh story, don't do that. Because Michelle, that's your story. And Don, that's my story. And Davis, that's your story. Our God, who has no real earthly reason to forgive us and help us and fix us and save us, wants to do nothing more than to do just that. And that is not just good news. That's the best news. Amen? Amen. But, but when we come up against a teaching or a verse or an image of the way in which we see how God is and who God is, it's not very long before we contrast that with the way that we are. 
And sometimes we start with the way others are before we ever get to the way we see ourselves in the story, don't we? When we see that God is loving and kind, he's holy, he's compassionate, he's merciful, we see ourselves in light of that and we recognize that we are not any of those things. It's a part of the good news that we recognize that we need these things that God wants to give us. We need the salvation that God is offering to us. And so in this story, we come up against Jonah and we see very quickly from chapter 1 to chapter 4 that Jonah, while he knows the good news and he is sharing the good news, if you will, about God, his life is not producing the good news in the way that God would hope that he would. And the scary part of this story or the recognition of that to me is that if we were trying to locate ourselves in the story, we would not be Ninevites and we would not be the fish. We would be Jonah, right? So this is who Jonah is. Jonah is a church-going-only kind of God follower. Nothing that God has done for him seems to get into him, and that's his problem from beginning to end. It's a problem for us, too. What God wants to do through us has to first begin in us. God's vision is to transform the body, mind, and spirit of humanity beginning in us and then moving outward. So that he may transform sin and brokenness and the shame of all creation. But Jonah's life does not display the good news that he preaches or the experience he's had with this God who forgives and reaches into the belly of a fish and pulls out one who's lost and desperate and hopeless. His life is almost exactly the opposite. But he's a church-going dude, the son of a prophet. Someone who knew more than anybody in Nineveh knew about God. Someone who kind of waxes in and waxes out on Sunday morning. Maybe like the lady on the video earlier this morning who was trying to make sure that church and God fit into her schedule and into her ways before she discovered small groups or life groups. Jonah is like us. And in so many ways, Jonah is us. Let's look at that, though, from, from the very beginning. Here's the problem with Jonah, and here's the problem with us. Jonah doesn't want to be who God has called him to be. God's called him to be a prophet. Not just somewhere, some point in time, did he tell him personally, whispering in his ear or speaking to his spirit, Jonah, you're going to be a prophet. But he makes him the son of a prophet, which was kind of a family tradition back in those days. Your dad's a prophet, you'll be a prophet. Your child will be a prophet. Just be a prophetic family. And you'll keep it in the family. And you'll know from the day you're born that you are going to be a preacher of the word of God. So study early. Listen closely to what God's going to say. You, my son, are a prophet. Jonah didn't want to be a prophet. And I don't know if he wanted to be a fishing boat captain or a shrimp boat captain, if you want to follow another movie. Or if he wanted to do something else with his time. But it was clear by the fact that he rebels when God gives him the opportunity. He did not want to be who God has called him to be. Now, to let you off the hook here, from a personal standpoint, God's not called most of us to be a professional prophet or pastor, as we sometimes say, this day and time. But he's called every one of us to be speakers of the truth into our life, into ourselves, into our homes, into our works, into our communities. So see, we're a little more like Jonah than we'd like to sometimes think about. We are a prophet of God. 
God has called us to speak the truth first after we live the truth into our world and to tell the people, tell all the people that we encounter who God is, what he's up to, and what he wants to do in their life. Now, if you're worried about that and you think, well, now I've got to go to seminary or now I've got to get to some kind of school, it's not that sophisticated, folks. All we need to be able to say is that, hey, you were created by God and God wants to clean up the creation that the world has warped. And you don't have to really do anything except believe that and accept that and respond to the way God leads you here or there, the, God, the way God works in your life day in and day out. It's not up to you. God's going to do the cleaning part, the working part in your life. Just trust and obey. Just let this good news gospel grip you in such a way that you don't worry about how you're going to fix your life because you believe that God is up to fixing your life. Even when it doesn't feel like he is, he is at work in our lives. Jonah doesn't want to be, though, who God's called him to be. And he doesn't want to do what God has called him to do. There's this generic calling, Jonah, you're a prophet. I'll make you the son of a prophet. I'll give you the name of a prophet. But Jonah, there's something specific that I want you to do as a prophet. Not everything is as specific. Go here, say that, do this, do that. But sometimes it is. And God calls Jonah to go to Nineveh, a bad place, a sinful place. From as far away as Jonah is from Nineveh, when he gets this call, he knows their reputation and he understands, not just because there's a cultural and an and a ethnic difference between he and the Ninevites, but he understands just kind of through sailor's language and lingo that Nineveh is the place that you go if you want to get captured in sin and want to get caught up in fighting. And God gives Jonah this specific call. Jonah, you are a prophet. I know you don't want to be, but you're going to be. Now go and do this. Go to this particular place. Go to these particular people. But Jonah does not want to be or do what God has called him to be or do. This is really the troubling part for most long-time card-carrying Christians. Because we get comfortable in the fact that we know that we're saved. And we know that our place in church is always secure and was going to sit in our seat and if we volunteer in any way unless we are really really bad at it no one's going to ask us to vacate that position and by virtue of serving in that office or sitting in that chair we are so secure in our salvation and in our place in the people of God or with the people of God that we are just content and in those moments in those times when God says, I want you to do this. I want you to say this. I want you to go to him or to her and encourage them, rebuke them, comfort them. We go, oh God, don't you know, we just hired a new preacher? And he's assembling or has assembled a staff and they are fully able and capable of doing all those things that you just suggested that I might do for you and we would never say this to God but this is what we're really saying I don't want to I don't want to do that folks we have no reason in this world to not do exactly what God wants us to do 
Because we have at the foundation of our faith that God is sovereign and loving and holy. And if we believe that and we pray about that and we sing about that and we hear it preached to us and taught to us over and over and over and again, reason and logic should tell us that if God is holy and loving and sovereign, then I don't have to worry about what he asks me to do or sends me to do because it's going to be okay. Can I tell you, based on personal experience in my own life and in the witnessing many other lives through years of ministry, that when people have stepped out in faith and done what they believe God was telling them to do, it's always turned out more than all right. It's turned out perfect. It's turned out awesome. It's turned out legendary, if you will. But Jonah doesn't want to be what God's called him to be, and he doesn't want to do what God has called him to do. So because of that, Jonah creates chaos in other people's lives through his rebellion. I love the ship scene on Holy Moly there. And I'm captured by the details of the story that these sailors who don't know Jonah, they try to save him from going overboard. It's Jonah's idea that he gets cast into the sea, and they argue with him. I can tell you my experience on a ship. If I'm out there in a storm, maybe even a small wave, and I have reason to believe that anybody on that, that boat is causing that to happen, they're going overboard. I would not have been nearly as compassionate as these sailors who don't know Jonah from Adam. But it's Jonah's rebellion that causes chaos in the sea and on this ship and changes kind of the course of what's going on there. It's the exact way that it happens when we say, God, I don't want to be that. I don't want to do that. So I'm just going to do my own thing. And we think that it's just between us and God. That's primarily true, but our business between us and God gets spilled off into so many other people's lives that we don't even recognize or want to think about. <laughs> I could spend hours just kind of analyzing culture today and saying, this is a problem not just because it's an actual sin in the Bible, but because this is how it affects the family. This is how it affects the community. This is how it affects the church. This is how it affects a school. This is how it would affect your place of business. This is how it affects a whole country. Sin is not just contained to our life. Rebellion is not just contained to my life. It spills out. And as a husband and as a father, it gets all over my wife and children. We don't think about that, though, because it's between us and God. Jonah doesn't want to be or do what God's called him to be and do, and he doesn't recognize that his rebellion causes great chaos in the life of these men on the ship that had no reason to. All they were trying to do is get from one city to the next and trying to do their job, and they came into conflict or came into, into conversation with this guy who's running and rebelling from God, and all of a sudden they're in the middle of a storm. And only Jonah's, I don't know what you would call it, idea to say, throw me overboard and that'll fix things, allows them to escape real harm in the situation. So Jonah is running. He's rebellious. He's causing conflict and chaos in other people's lives. And it never occurs to him probably why he's kind of tumbling into the water and swimming away from sharks before the guppy gets him that he is at the end of his world. But Jonah only surrenders to God when he's at the very end of the world. I, can, can anybody imagine any place 
further removed from the world than the being in the fish in the bottom of the ocean. I can't think of where that place would be. Not on the highest mountain, not down at the end of the Amazon, but in the bottom of the ocean, in the belly of a fish. You're at the end of the world, dude. There's nowhere to go. Just you and your thoughts and your sin and your shame and God. Thanks be to God that Jonah has some memory of a God who at some point in time appointed him to be a prophet and gave him a sermon. See, I, I like to believe that before Jonah was a rebellious prophet, he probably at least once in his life preached in a very faithful, true way, gave his prophetic, prophetic calling a true offering to God and shared the good news in an appropriate way with somebody and therefore uh, really not earned but justified his calling as a prophet. And it's in the belly of this whale that he remembers that though I ran from God, though I rebelled at the call of God, though I caused great chaos in the lives of these men who were innocent men and now I'm caught up in the belly of this fish, I know that the God who created and called me is still very, very, very near. If we believe it's good news that our God is merciful and loving and saving and wants to do all those things in our life, we should just kind of make a point B to that and say, and he often does that when we've come to the end of ourselves. I, I would like to believe in my life and in your life that at the very moment that sin and brokenness occurred, we would have the conscience to recognize it and go, oh, I can't live like that. I can't let that go on. We've got to fix that. But that's not the way human nature works, is it? What do we do? We deny it. We cover it up. We act like it's no big deal. And one sin becomes two. One broken relationship becomes two. One small problem in our life becomes a mountain of problems. And maybe one day by the grace of God, when we're either at the bottom of the ocean in the belly of a well or somewhere in between there and a good place, we remember, we recognize, we recall the story of a God who doesn't want us to live in that way and in those conditions. And, and, and if we really remember that story well, we remember that we can't do anything to save ourselves or fix ourselves. It's all up to God. And, and then if our, our memory's really working well and we remember that he wants to do this and, and he's the only one that can do it, then we say, then it's just up to me to accept and believe and return to him who wants to do these great things in my life and fix this brokenness, this shame, this chaos, all of these problems in my life. Now, don't hear me say that coming to faith means that your past sin and chaos and brokenness is erased forever. Because we will live with those errors, that sin, that brokenness. Sometimes God can completely fix things, but sometimes we have to live with the memory of that pain. But not with the guilt, not with the suffering, and not with the condemnation to forever live inside of a fish in the bottom of the ocean. Jonah 
does not turn to God until that point. He's at the end of the world, but praise be to God that he does turn to him. Jonah then moves to the calling that God originally gave him. It's awesome when God says, hey, I haven't given up on that plan I had for you, so return to that. Just pick up where we left off when you decided to run away. Jonah goes to Nineveh. He, began to preach the, he begins to preach this, this story. God is coming, and, and he's going to condemn you, and, and your, your whole city is going to be turned upside down, and you are going to regret that in 40 days your whole city will be a shambles, and it will be overthrown because you are set up to be judged by a God who's loving and compassionate, or, or I'm sorry, who's sovereign and able to do these things that I'm telling you he's going to do. Now, Here's the interesting thing to me. Jonah does not share the good news of grace with Nineveh. He gives them the judgment. He was at the belly of the well. Even though he found himself throwing himself over and trying to end it all into the water, God sends this saving vessel to catch him. And then, apparently, according to Holy Moly, he even has a fire inside of the fish to see things with. That's grace, right? That's a God who provides a way out of the end of the world, out of your problems and mess. But when he returns to the prophetic call, he does not say, hey, God in 40 days is going to judge you. But you need to know that he doesn't really want to judge you. He could have judged me in a very violent way. He could have let me go to the ends of the earth and called another prophet. But he didn't. He reached down and picked me up and put me on solid ground and sent me now to preach this story to you. So while I'm telling you I'm serious in 40 days, he's going to judge this city. If any time between now and then you cry out to him and you trust in him and you turn from your evil ways and repent of your sins, he will change his mind and save you. He doesn't say that. 40 days, you will be judged. 40 days and you'll be overthrown. Now, Not in Scripture, so don't spend the afternoon scouring through chapter 2 or chapter 3. It's not in here. But I'm going to tell you what actually takes place here that maybe one of these days we'll be able to sit down with God and ask him some of the details about this. Jonah preaches judgment. The king does not hear simply judgment. Oh, I think he believes that Jonah's serious, right? But he doesn't just give up and he doesn't fortify the city and he doesn't call people out to one last 40-day party and say, well, let's just get it on. He says, folks, it's time to pray. It's time to fast and maybe, maybe this God that Jonah's talking about who's so set to judge us, maybe he'll change his mind. Where in the world is a king that lives in Nineveh, get the idea that this God who's sovereign, this one true God, have any compassionate, merciful bone in his body. Where does that come from? I can only believe that maybe, maybe some sailors from that boat made their way there and began to tell a story about one day they were on this boat. That may or may not have happened. But if it wasn't them, it may have been someone else who at some point had passed through northern Israel where Jonah was from and and maybe had heard another prophet preaching in a compassionate, merciful, saving kind of way. And when Jonah begins to preach this, they say, that's a Hebrew prophet. I know the God he's talking about. 
I've been to his land. And not only do they believe that this God is sovereign and can judge things, but they believe that he's a God that saves and is merciful and restores things. Why don't we do this, O good king? I, I don't know who it was or how it came to place, or maybe it was just something that God laid upon the heart and the spirit of this king to try something new. But while Jonah's preaching condemnation and fear and judgment, this king begins to say, let's fall on our face and trust in God. Jonah does not preach the grace that he was given. He just accepts it and goes on. Jonah then, in chapter 4, responds to the way that God has changed his mind when the people fast and pray. And Jonah gets mad that his prophetic work has not been rewarded with a God show. I think Jonah was ready to preach his message and go and sit outside the city wall with popcorn and an easy chair and go, it's going to be awesome. It's going to descend right over the city and God's just going to crush them. It's going to be one of those big, incredible Hulk fists that just kind of comes out of the and bam, right down on the city and crushes them. And he was disappointed that God saw the repentance. Here's the repentance of Nineveh and says, I'm not, I'm not going to judge you. I'm going to forgive you. I'm going to work in your city and in your life and in your rule in a brand new way. With or without Jonah's approval or involvement. Jonah gets mad. This passage says, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. He was mad. And he prayed to the Lord and said, oh, Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful. Oh, you knew that. Where was that in the sermon you preached to Nineveh? You're slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. He's mad as he can be. I, I tell you, I don't think I'll ever have the guts to just tell God, I'm mad at you. I'm angry that you chose to do this. I'm angry that, especially, I'm angry that you forgave him or her or them. He's saying, I told you I knew this would happen. It almost sounds like he's saying, I knew you were a weepy weak little God who doesn't really want to show your power and your authority and your sovereignty all over this world. You are so soft, loving, and compassionate, and merciful. I, I hope this morning, if you were sitting here going, boy, there's some things in my life that are messed up. And I can't blame it on God. I can't blame it on him or her or them or that, I can only blame it on myself. If you haven't heard anything I said before or after or anything that was said or sung or shared, hear this. Our God is a soft, approachable, loving, compassionate, ready to forgive, saving kind of God who does not want to crush us, does not want to kill us, does not want to see our life end in any way. He wants to forgive. He wants to restore. And he, want to fix, he wants to fix everything about us, even the anger and the, the insanity that takes place when we think we're in this wrestling match with God. Jonah's mad that he doesn't see this show. 
And he goes on further in chapter 4. And it shows how selfish he is to the core of who he is and how it affects every action and every relationship and every feeling. Here's what it says. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, are you angry? See, God kind of misses it the first time because he's so excited and interested in saving Nineveh and maybe Jonah. He misses the first time. He says, I'm angry. Are you angry? What do you have to be angry about, Jonah? What do you have to be mad about, Jonah? You see, the word anger and the word mad is used both in the title of the sermon and in the scripture here this morning, but it's deeper than that. It's not just an emotion that's taking place here. We, we could have changed anger and used greed or lust or any of the other sins that we typically consider to be you know, cardinal sins or, or sins, and, and they all are, are, are sins that come to the surface of someone who's so full of themselves, so, so self-centered and selfish that they pit themselves as equal to or greater than God. And, and that's what's happening with Jonah here. He is so selfish, so self-centered that he is, he is sure that he knew better than God. He knew what was going to happen more so than what God knew. And he could have fixed this better and he could have had a better plan and it could have been a better story if God had just kind of played by the ball that, that Jonah wanted to have. And now he's so mad that God didn't let it turn out the way that Jonah wanted it to turn out and it didn't happen the way Jonah wanted it to happen. He's mad, he's mad, he's mad. Jonah is so selfish. It's our selfishness and our self-centeredness that reveals who we are. And it comes out through our anger and our greed and our envy and our lust and our gluttony. Even if we fool people some of the time, we never fool ourselves and we never fool God. We know who we are and so does he. He knows the way that we think and feel and act even when no one is looking or listening. And so do we. And since we're not the people of Nineveh, we're not the men on the boat, and we're certainly not the fish, we're Jonah here. What really concerns me and has concerned me all the years of my preaching ministry is that week in and week out, Jonah's walk in and out of the congregation, sometimes even into the office as leaders, sure of themselves, self-confident, full of self-centeredness, angry, mad, greedy, church-going kind of folks, but in no way godly examples of what it means to be a person who once was at the end of themselves, full of sin, full of shame, broken in their relationships with God and others, and God reached down and picked them up, picked us up, and took us as we were and forgave us and began to whisper into our spirit that it's going to be okay, that whatever's going on now or whatever happened in the past can be forgiven, can be fixed, can be worked through. Just trust just listen. Sometimes we know this to be true. We hear it in 
the sermon or we read it in our own devotional life, we recognize that we are self-centered, that we are full of our own self. It comes out in a variety of ways. Sometimes we, we believe this in our mind, and sometimes it may be something that in our heart of hearts we know to be true, but we just can't see ourselves for who we are. And sometimes we need a little help. Ain't you tired? Ain't you tired of playing like you've got everything under control? That you've got life just like in the place where you want it to be? Ain't you tired of playing church? Playing Christian? Playing perfect? Ain't you tired? Stand with me this morning. Lord, we, we confess to you this morning that so much of who we are is wrapped up in controlling our own future, our own present, our own past. So much of who we are is wrapped up in the protection of our own pride, our own control, our own reputation. So much of who we are and how we act is some, so often pretending. But Lord, as quickly as we confess that, we recognize our need for things to change, our weariness for being mad, being angry, being rebellious, being judgmental, bringing chaos into our, our own life and our own family and our own church and our own community. Lord, if we were really, really honest with ourselves, we would confess that we are tired of being God in our own life. And we would just confess our need for you to take that job first and foremost. We don't have to beg you to do it, convince you to do it, buy or purchase your right to do it, Lord. You are waiting to come into us, to save us, to forgive us, to clean us up. And, and for those of us who know that already, Lord, you're, you're waiting to take control of our lives, wanting to take control of our lives. Lord, we're tired of being in control. We're tired of being mad. We're tired of being rebellious. Lord, we're tired of being all of those things that bring shame to the good news in our life and in our world. Thank you for not leaving it up to us to do anything, but sending Christ our Lord to do it all first on the cross, and now in this very room right here this morning. May the sin and shame and condemnation of our own life and actions be nailed to the cross today so that we may be resurrected with the one and only Son of the living God. To live lives full of faith and hope and love that are redeemed and restored for the purpose of creating a new rule, a new kingdom in this world not one of our own 
and not one of our own control or shaping, Lord, but the kingdom that you so desperately want to bring and are bringing, Lord, right into our midst. May we not be a critic of what you do. And may we, Lord, not be an opponent of how you are working. But Lord, may we compliment the way in which you have taken over our lives and brought us out of the belly of a whale, and brought us out of the judgment, the condemnation of being a sinful city and a sinful people, Lord. And you've poured out the same grace in both instances to gather your children into being your own. Lord, as tired as we are today, may we forever be tired of trying to be you in our own lives so that we may let you be the conquering king, the forgiving savior, and the working spirit in us to save us and keep us and use us. Come today, Lord, we pray, and move upon us in a powerful and a real way. We've heard the gospel this morning. We've heard the good news. We've heard the message that we do not get what we deserve. We get something far better. We get grace. We get love. And all of us were in a city called Nineveh at one point. We pray that you find that love and that grace. For God is not out to get you. He is out to save you. And he's out to use us to save others. And it is a good news this morning. So glad that you're here this morning. So glad you've joined us. Pardon me, got to be honest, the whole time, if you've watched Breaking Bad, I was just waiting for, for Jonah to be like a crystal meth uh, cooker in some way. Good news that he's not. Uh, that is not the good news. But uh, great word today from the Lord. I pray that it turns around in your life this week. Things that are happening with us in a community, some things uh, that you should join and be a part of. If you want to, to, to grow in your relationship with God on Wednesday night, we're starting different Bible studies and things. There's a, a Celebrate Recovery group that meets on Tuesdays. On Wednesdays is an all guys group. We'll get together. We'll talk about football. We'll have some guys, food, uh, and we'll learn more about our Lord. There's a, another group Bible study that's meeting called The Grave Robber. That's starting on Wednesday night as well. We've got this thing called Mops. And MOPS is mother, uh, Mothers of Preschoolers. And this is an opportunity for our mothers, if you're a mom of a preschooler, to come and to be encouraged, to learn more about our Lord, to be with one another. But it's also a chance for you to invite others to be a part of that. If you know someone, here's an opportunity to, to, to invite them to church. That's happening. And then we've got a cool thing happening in our, the baby's room to the left. We're going to take down one of those walls to make it a much bigger area for kids. So next Sunday, we're going to have kind of a serve demo day. If you want to be a part of that, if you like to break things, if you like to smash things, or if you like to clean things up or tape things, then we need you uh, next Sunday. And it's a great chance for us to serve together as a community. This week, let's go with gratitude in our hearts. May it just fill our hearts because we know that we have a God that saves. And may we have hope in our eyes as we spread that good news to others this week. Go in peace.